The text for the sermon today is taken from the introit. Hear my law, O my people. Incline your ears unto the words of my mouth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. When King Solomon took rule over the nation of Israel from his father David, he also took on an obligation to build a house of God which had been promised to David. And so once he had established his kingdom, which took a little bit, Solomon built the first temple, the place where God had promised to dwell with his people so they might worship him. And when it was completed, Solomon gathered all of the people of Israel to come to the temple, and he offered up a prayer of dedication. And you can read this prayer in 1 Kings 8. It's a magnificent prayer. And what's striking about it is that he first gives thanks to God because the creator of the whole universe has now decided to dwell in a house that he is too grand to fill, right? And so he says, thanks be to God that he has chosen to dwell with his people in this particular place. And then Solomon prays this. He asks God that this might be the place where people pray. That's the purpose of the temple. It might be the place where people pray. Now, why would they want to pray towards that one place? Solomon says, O Lord, hearken to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they shall pray toward this place. And hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. That's the purpose of prayer. That's the purpose of the temple, the worship of God, so that the people of God might be forgiven and come back into union with him. And so Solomon goes on in this prayer, and paragraph after paragraph is this dedication of the temple for forgiveness. He says, God, forgive the nation when they have trespassed. God, forgive the nation when they've done evil and they've been taken by foreign enemies. A little bit of low expectations there by Solomon, I feel like, right? And this is what happens, of course. Then he goes on, forgive the nation when they've trespassed and you have sent famine or disease or plague upon the land. And then he says, to hear any supplication of any man of Israel. When they pray towards this place, hear them and forgive. In the last part of the prayer, then Solomon makes another kind of crazy declaration. He says, God, moreover concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, when he shall come and pray toward this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and do all according to that stranger which you've done for the people and forgive. So now this temple of Israel has now become the place for the whole world to receive forgiveness from because it's the dwelling place of God. But... Seeking after God's forgiveness requires also a commitment to follow God's commands. And so in the last part of Solomon's benediction, he says this. So that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. 
Let your heart, Israel, therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. It's a little bit ironic then that Solomon did not do this himself. And in fact, just three chapters later in 1 Kings 11, we see Solomon looking to foreign cultures, Solomon marrying foreign wives, and then Solomon building altars to foreign gods right then. And so the author of 1 Kings writes, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto Solomon twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Notice that, that Solomon's heart is hardened not because the Lord will not forgive him, the Lord sought after him twice to repent, and Solomon refused to repent. And now Solomon's heart is hardened, and he does not look at the temple. He looks at his other temples. He looks at these other people instead of at the temple in Jerusalem. And he does not seek forgiveness. He will not repent, and so he does not receive forgiveness. And so God raises up enemies even from among Solomon's own. And a man of war named Jeroboam is raised up, an Israelite. And he rebels against Solomon. And here we have, well, not the first, but one of many of the civil wars of Israel just within the first two generations. And this one splits Israel in half. And so Jeroboam takes the ten tribes of the north and leads their way. And Solomon takes his two last remaining tribes and goes their way. Well, now we have Jeroboam. And God promises to Jeroboam the exact same thing that he promises to Solomon. In fact, it's kind of the exact same thing that he promises to David, isn't it? The exact same thing that he promised to the Hebrews when they're wandering through the wilderness. It's the exact same thing he promises to Adam in the garden. I will give you a kingdom. And if you follow my commandments, you will flourish and you will have life everlasting. But Adam... The Hebrews, David, Solomon, Jeroboam, none of them follow the commandments. And so Israel, which is split in half now, brings judgment upon herself because they don't turn back. They don't pray to the temple. They don't seek forgiveness and wholeness from Yahweh who is seeking to forgive them. Well, this whole depressing narrative is the backdrop for the Mass today. Let me explain this. Because in each Mass, we have what are called the major propers, which would be the Collect, the Epistle, and the Gospel. That changes every week. It's what is proper to the day. But then we also have what are called the minor propers. And if you open up your bulletin, you'll see, just on the very first part of the Mass, that word called the introit. That's one of the many minor propers in a service. And the minor propers are these short phrases that change every week. And it can be the introit. It will be the gradual and the alleluia right before the gospel. It will be the, um, the offertory, the communion. And there's a post-communion one as well. All of these small pieces of scripture add in 
and help give us shape to the narrative of the Mass. What is this service today trying to teach us? And this is where it's in the minor propers that the whole Old Testament is presented to us to understand the revelation of the gospel. They're quite short, and they will pass you by if you don't pay attention. And what is more, they implore an ancient expectation of good memory, which we just don't have. And so whenever the ancients quoted a passage, and this is not just in the liturgy, this is in any, most any ancient text, when they want to quote a passage, they will just quote the first line. And they expect you to know, in your mind, what's the rest of that passage. So all they have to do is quote the first line of a poem, and it brings up all the rest. Or the first line of a song, and it brings up the rest. Or even the first line of a paragraph of one of Cicero's speeches, and you would know, oh yeah, of course, that's what he's talking about. We can still do this today. If I brought up the line to you, um, oh say can you see? Are you thinking, are we looking at birds? Or, or why are you saying? No, all of you know. That's our national anthem. And then in your mind's eye, you can see, oh, I can see the flag waving in the smoke, appearing as it parts, and there's bullet holes through it, and there's the revolution and all the patriotism of our country. And you can kind of go from that one line, and you can experience this kind of expansive memory of what that anthem means. That is an ancient form of quotation. And so what I'm arguing today is that these minor propers offer up to us the way into the vast narrative of the whole scripture. And so that through these minor propers, we start seeing the gospel in light of where it's coming from. The Old Testament, which is not old, it's just what was before. So, Take a look at the intro in your bulletin, and it's helpful to look, look at this. The first part of the intro is actually a, a paraphrase, and it's taken on its term in and of itself called the Salus Populi, and it's a paraphrase of the end of Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a psalm of David, and this is important for us because we're in the mindset right now of kings. We're in the mindset of a nation, a kingdom being established. And Psalm 37 is a great, wonderful psalm of the establishment of a kingdom in the trust of God. A little tidbit, it was Origen's favorite psalm. It was Augustine's, one of his top five psalms. Go and read it. It's a beautiful psalm. And in this psalm, which kind of sounds like the same prayer that Solomon made in front of the temple... He's praying that the Lord will help them in tribulation. Well, the second half of the introit then helps us understand what is meant in Psalm 37 by tribulation. And here we come to Psalm 78. And I think this is the key to the whole Mass today. Psalm 78 was written in Jerusalem at the temple during the rebellion of Jeroboam against Solomon. So this psalm is written during the split of Israel itself. It's heartbreaking. It is a horrible psalm to read and to contemplate because it's in the context of a horrible civil war of Israel. 
It's talking about the judgment coming upon Israel because of Solomon. It's also given the larger context of how every king of Israel has failed. And so what is the quote in the Mass today from this psalm? It is that we must hear my law, O my people, and incline your ears unto the words of my mouth. Because Solomon didn't and Jeroboam didn't, Israel is ruined. And they're exiled and they're taken over by foreign powers. So what do they need? They need forgiveness, which leads to salvation. They need wholeness. They need life. Well, notice, salvation comes from God, but it's prescribed. You must follow his laws. You must listen to his words and then come back to him. That's the context of the gospel today. And so when Jesus enters into the scene in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, this is right after the temptation in the wilderness. Guess what his first words are when he comes onto the scene? He, sees, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think about that. Given the context that we're in today, we can see how Jesus' command to repent, that's the same command being given to Israel again and again and again by the judges, by the prophets, by the kings. And in some way, it's a political statement. Because only the leaders of Israel talk that way. And so Jesus, by saying, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, he's also saying, I'm ushering in this kingdom. He's offering himself as the leader, and he's asking Israel to repent so that they can be forgiven. That's the first line that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. And so then it becomes really striking when he claims later on that his body is the temple. Think about that. Because now it's in Christ, in Jesus himself, that forgiveness and worship and the presence of God Almighty is located. It's in him. He is Zion. He is wholeness. He is the one who cannot but be removed but stands forever. And so those around him, his apostles, his disciples, his enemies are always watching him to test that, to see if really is he the Messiah? Is he leading in a new kingdom? Can that be possible? And what we see in the gospel this week is Jesus defending his claim with authority by his actions to those who are skeptical. So Jesus enters into a ship, he passes over and he comes into his own city, and behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Notice here that the man who's sick of palsy, and palsy is a, it's a, we don't really know exactly what it was. It was a paralysis. It was any disease that gave someone a paralysis so that they couldn't move. And so here, this man who cannot move is brought to Jesus by his friends. And Jesus does not even address the sick person. He doesn't test him, which he usually does in healings. He heals them on account of whose faith? On account of his friend's faith. So on account of their faith, Jesus then turns to the sick man and says, 
Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. I've often wondered, what did the sick guy think then? That's it? Really? I was really hoping I could be healed, Jesus. What does his friends think? They brought him so far, they probably told him, hey, we're going to bring you to the one who can heal you. And he says, your sins be forgiven. But notice Jesus' interaction next with the Pharisees. The greater is proved by the lesser here. And Jesus wants this to also come to us. What do we hope for from God? Do we hope for forgiveness of our sins, which is the greatest healing? Or do we just hope for a lesser healing of health, of relationships, of, of other things on a lower level? And behold, the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he rose, departed to his house, and when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power unto men. So Jesus now demonstrates his power of healing the body so that he can claim his greater power to heal spiritually. This claim to heal spiritually, to forgive sins, that is unique to God. That is unique to Yahweh who dwells at the temple. At this point, the Pharisees and all of his disciples, his apostles, and then we, the readers, have to somehow reconcile his clear power of healing with his claims of divinity. Jesus' actions of healing and forgiving, they're bold claims of kingly leadership and the dawn of a new kingdom. Now a new David is present, but one who not only has the attributes of a king, but also the attributes of the creator himself. Here is the arrival of the true kingdom in which all may turn to forgiveness, for healing, for wholeness, for everlasting life. This is what we're going to say in another minor proper of the offertory. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, yet shall thou refresh me, O Lord. Thou shalt stretch forth thy right hand upon the furiousness of my enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. This kingdom of God that Jesus ushered in is the same kingdom that's being offered to you in the church. It is the church. For before Jesus ascended, he set in place his apostles to be his messengers, to be his emissaries. And what's interesting, though it shouldn't be shocking to us, is that both in Matthew and John, they connect the power to forgive with leadership. They connect the power to forgive with leadership. So, for example, in John 20, this is right after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The apostles are still hidden in the upper room. Jesus appears to them and says, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. That's a transfer of power. And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. 
and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So notice how Jesus passes on the leadership of the kingdom through the power of forgiveness. That's the sign of the leader in the church of God, is to have the power of forgiveness. Matthew does the same thing, both in chapter 18 and in chapter 16. Whenever he's talking to his apostles about taking the leadership of the church, he tells them that what they bind will be bound and what they loose will be loosed. In two cases. And so here, the leaders of the church, that is given over that power through the power of absolution. That power is still what happens for all of us in our confessions. That when you make the general confession here and the priest turns and gives the absolution, you are being truly forgiven for your sins. And as the prayer book says, if your conscience can still not be, tr not be calmed, go seek out a private confession. And in that private confession, you can no longer trick yourself. You can no longer hide. You can no longer let darkness take control of you. But what you can do is you can open yourself up and you can receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness heals us. It brings us back into the kingdom where forgiveness and mercy are not just signs of the kingdom, they're actually the culture of the kingdom. Right? Take a look what Paul writes at the end of the epistle for this morning. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking but put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The Christian life is oriented towards our union with God to participate in his life. This doesn't just begin after we die. The kingdom of God is present now. And remarkably, one of the key features of that kingdom is mercy. God seeks to forgive you as he has always sought to forgive his people who repent. Examine your heart. Confess your sins. And be free, free from all or any evil that holds on to you. Seek after this mercy each day by living out your life in the life of the church and you will find it to be the most freeing life of all. Hear my law, O my people, and incline your ears unto the words of my mouth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <laughs>